welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hey, welcome along to Gateway this morning. If you do happen to be visiting with us, we're thrilled you're here. Um, if you're a regular, glad you're back. Um, if you're a regular, you'll know that we've been doing a series in the morning called One God, One Story, and One People. And it takes too long to give you a kind of a summary of the whole journey in terms of where we've come from, but the podcasts are available and you're most welcome to go and, and follow through. But essentially, uh, I've been talking about the fact that the Bible is a grand narrative, it's a story. And as a, a grand narrative, it speaks to the questions that every single person asks. And every culture has these kinds of stories that speak to those deep human questions. Who am I? What am I doing here? What's gone wrong with the world? How can it be fixed? Uh, where are we heading? What time is it in the, in the process? And uh, every story seeks to answer those questions for the people within its culture. And we've been talking about the fact that the Bible is a, a big story. More often than not, we approach it as a mosaic of stories, and we take stories from it, but we fail to see that connecting thread of the one God, the one story, and the one people. Now, over the last few weeks, I've broken into the what we've called the six acts. Acts 1, creation. Acts 2, the fall. Acts 3, election of the one people. Acts 4, the coming of Jesus and the, uh, the, the, the outworking of the redemption that had been promised in the story. Acts 5, the mission of the one people. And then Acts 6, the consummation of redemption. And what I did is I broke into the story at part 4, Act 4, which is the coming of Jesus. Because it's at that place most often often uh, the story is broken up and people for some reason assume that Jesus was telling a different story than had been told in the previous three acts. It's as if Jesus is the founder of a new religion and uh, that, that thought never entered Jesus' head. He came as the fulfillment of the story to this point and the pivot of the story going forward. He didn't change the story. He is the fulfillment of the story thus far. Last week, we started to talk about Paul and the one story because if people don't break the story with Jesus, they very often break it with Paul. And they say that Paul's radical encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus amounted to such a paradigm shift that he forgot everything that was part of his Jewish heritage, and he took the church in a completely new direction. And people talk about the old part of the story being law. Paul was against that and said, you know, this is not about law, it's about grace. But that's a very, very superficial uh, approach to the story. And Paul is, is a Jewish thinker. And the encounter that he had with Jesus on the road to Damascus and subsequently with the Holy Spirit didn't change his Jewish thinking. It radically reworked it, but Paul was a Jewish thinker and theologian and practitioner, and he remained that, except that the three great pillars of Judaism, monotheism, election, and eschatology, because of Paul's encounter with Jesus, he, he took those same things. He didn't throw them out. He didn't change the story. He approached monotheism as it had been freshly revealed to him. 
He approached election, the one people, and he reworked it in a fresh way by virtue of what he'd been exposed to. And then he took the one story, the eschatology, the future and one story of God's people, and he reimagined it. He, He didn't change anything. He didn't alter the story. He developed and expanded the story. And so last week, I I tried to start to unpack those ideas. The, The monotheism freshly revealed the election freshly reworked. And we got halfway through this idea of election. So I want to try and pick up from halfway through last week's sermon, or or halfway through last week's sermon, rather. I tried to show you from the scripture that when election kicked in in Genesis chapter 12, that even from that point, election was never about solely being a matter of Abraham's seed physically. That physical descent and bloodline, though it was important, was not the sole consideration. God chose one family out of the earth, and then even within that family, God chose some and left others to the side. And that choosing went along the lines of faith and obedience, and not simply physical descent. If you go back to the story, you see how he chose Isaac, but not Ishmael. He chose Jacob, but not Esau, and so on it goes on. And Paul takes that idea of election and the choosings of God, and he develops it in his writing. And I, I, I tried to show you last week how what I think in a devastatingly clear and compelling manner Paul shows that membership in Abraham's family is not simply a matter of faith. Uh, Sorry, a matter of physical descent. I'm getting ahead of myself. It's not just physical descent. It's not just the physical boundary marks of circumcision. Paul shows in a devastatingly clear way that being part of Abraham's seed, of Abraham's family, is a matter of faith. It's a matter of being in Christ. And as Galatians says, Abraham's seed is defined now by new creation. It's not a matter of physical descent. And so we looked last week at passages in Galatians, in Romans, Ephesians, in Philippians, and Colossians, where Paul drives that thought home and we are left with a very, very clear idea that you and I as Gentiles have been narrated into the story of Israel. We have been taken from the outside and we are placed in that story. And Paul calls us the Israel of God, the true Jews, the elect. Let me just rewind and I'll read one scripture that I read last week. I won't read it in its fullness, but it's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. And this is what Paul says. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, some of you might remember in Philippians, Paul says, we are circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands. 
Here he's talking about a boundary marker made with hands. There is another one that is made without hands, in other words, made by God. He says, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In other words, Paul says, when you were Gentiles, you were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, godless. You you were on the outside, but he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one, Jews and Gentiles. We are made one, one people. And he's broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Those of us in Christ, Paul says, are the Israel of God. You are the true circumcision. And in Romans chapter 2, he says, you are the true Jews. Now, when Paul is writing, and we're picking up now from where I left off last week, okay? Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, largely a Gentile church. And as he's saying some of these things to them, it's, he says some things almost as an aside, and it would be so easy just to gloss over them, not even think about them. But, but these little asides show us what Paul thinks about Gentile Christians now being narrated into Israel's story. For example, in the passage on the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says this, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. He says, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. We we just read on because we're interested in the gifts of the Spirit, but there's a, a little phrase in there. When you were pagans... Paul notes that once they were pagans, but now they're not. The the Greek word for pagans is the word ethnos. And Mountsey's Greek dictionary simply says, these were people who were distinguished from Jews. Exactly the same words used in Matthew chapter 4, verse 15, where it says, the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali in the way to the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, of the people who are not Israel. That's ethnos. These people were not Jewish. Now, Paul says to them, once you were not Jewish, but now. But now you are not that any longer. You were pagans, you were ethnos, but you are that no longer. Just skip over that. But it's like, stop. What did you say? We are now narrated into the story of Israel. We were that, but no longer that. Now we're Jewish, as it were. True Jews, as Paul says in Romans 2. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he's writing to people who are largely Gentile, not Jewish, and he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, you would, you would think that he would make reference to the Jewish fathers, or he would say, their fathers, but he doesn't. Writing to this Gentile church, he says they are our fathers. And he sees Gentile believers in Jesus being narrated into the story so that they are truly our fathers, not, not their fathers. Moving from Paul, you come to James's epistle. It starts in a stunning way. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad, 
greetings. Listen, all of us know James is a letter to the Christians. And yet he describes these Christians as the 12 tribes. What is that about? He has redefined Israel along exactly the same lines as Paul has, but he doesn't designate them true Israel. He says, you're the 12 tribes. We've been narrated into the story of Israel. By the way, when you see it that way, that gives a whole new light on passages in Revelation that people have done amazingly uh, creative things with. For example, you know, the, the, the dreaded 144,000 that you can read about in the book of Revelation. And, and, and it talks about this 144,000, 12,000 from every tribe. I, I remember reading how Lindsay, when I first got saved, and how Lindsay said that 144,000 are 144,000 ethnic Jews who will be like 144,000 Billy Grahams unleashed on the end of the age. But, but seriously, when you read the story and you see James writing to Christians and saying, you're the 12 tribes. And when you come across to the book of Revelation and you have 12 times 12 in an apocalyptic book where symbols really matter and you've got 144,000, most commentators that I know do not go along the lines of ethnic Jews. They go along the lines of this is the church. This is the church in its perfection, in its fullness. And it changes so much when you see what Paul is writing here. Listen, to put the icing on the cake or the cream on the coffee, whatever you like, you come to Romans chapter 9 through 11, where Paul starts talking about this thorny Jewish question. And in Romans chapter 11, verses 16 to 24, he uses the very familiar image of an olive tree. And in uh, both Jeremiah chapter 11 and Hosea chapter 14, Israel is likened to, to an olive tree. So Paul, drawing on that familiarity, talks about a tree. And you'll note that it's a single tree, a single family, rooted in the patriarchs and in the promises that God made to them. It is a tree or family in which many of the natural branches have been broken off and strangely against nature, many wild and unnatural branches have been grafted in. And you note really clearly there are not two trees, there is one tree. There are not two families, there's one family. And I want to read this passage to you in the message translation. It's quite a long one, so stick with me. He says, behind and underneath all this, there is a holy, God-planted, God-tended root. If the primary root of the tree is holy, there's bound to be some holy fruit. Some of the tree's branches were pruned, and you wild olive shoots were grafted in. He's writing to the Gentile Christians. And yet the fact that you were now fed by that rich and holy root gives you no cause to crow over the pruned branches. Remember, you aren't feeding the root, the root is feeding you. It's certainly possible to say other branches were pruned so that I could be grafted in. Well and good. But they were pruned because they were dead wood no longer collected, uh, connected by belief and commitment to the root. The only reason you're on the tree is because your graft took when you believed and because and because you're connected to that belief-nurturing root. So don't get cocky and strut your branch. 
Be humbly minded of the root that keeps you lithe and green. If God didn't think twice about pruning, uh, taking the pruning shears to the natural branches, why would he hesitate over you? He wouldn't give it a second thought. Make sure you stay alert to these qualities of gentle kindness and ruthless severity that exist side by side in God. Ruthlessness with the dead wood, gentle with the grafted shoot. But don't presume on this gentleness. The moment you become dead wood, you're out, of the, you're out of there. And don't get feeling superior to those pruned branches down on the ground. If they don't persist in remaining dead wood, they could very well get grafted back in. God can do that. He can perform miracle grafts. Why, if he could graft you, branches cut from a tree out in the wild into the orchard tree, he certainly isn't going to have any trouble grafting branches back into the tree they grew from in the first place. Just be glad you're in the tree and hope for the best for the others. I love the message translation. Don't strut your branch. (laughs) From what have these unbelieving, unbelieving Jews been cut from? He's saying these unbelieving Jews have been cut out of the tree. Now, obviously, they have not been cut from their Jewish ethnicity. They, of course, remain Jews. But they have been broken off from this family of Abraham, considered along the lines of faith, called the Israel of God or the 12 tribes, if you like. And believing Gentiles have been grafted into and belong in this new entity that is not discontinuous with Israel, but is Israel in the eyes of God. They are by faith incorporated into, narrated into Israel and its story. This is not replacement theology. This is inclusion. The Gentiles have been included in and narrated into Israel's story. In my view, for what it's worth, no one can read Romans 11 and the olive tree verses and conclude that the church is separate from Israel. And that God has two separate people with two different destinies, a physical people and a, and a, and a, and a heavenly people. I, I think that's reading into the text. For me at least, the dispensational idea that God has a second distinctive people that he calls his own elect who are ethnic, unbelieving Israel, who have a separate existence apart from the church of Jesus Christ, creates insurmountable theological problems. I mentioned last week about some people who have what they call a two-covenant theology, which basically means that Israel can reject their Messiah and yet find salvation along different lines. The Pope said this exact thing about six or eight weeks ago. He was simply uh, reaffirming the teachings of the Second Vatican Council that basically say exactly that. Uh, The Catholics aren't the only people who believe that. The Church of Scotland have also come out with the same idea, that ethnic unbelieving Jews, in terms of unbelieving in their Messiah, they find grace in another covenant, I'm sorry, but that runs in the face of the clear teaching of the New Testament. Paul would die rather than affirm that. In fact, he was willing to die and lose his eternal salvation so that the people, his people, ethnic Israel, could be incorporated into Abraham's seed along the lines of faith. He says that. 
There's one name under heaven by which men and women can be saved, and it's Jesus Christ. I think the Bible teaches that Jesus has one body, one bride, one people, and it's the true Israel of God, Abraham's promised seed, the 12 tribes, the elect, you can call them what you like, Abraham, uh, the Bible has a number of titles. These are the people who were called to be blessed and to be a blessing. If you can put that diagram up, I, I think it goes somewhat like that. It raises, of course, the immediate and very thorny question of, does God have a purpose for ethnic, unbelieving Israel? You might think, Don, do you believe that ethnic Israel still has a place in God's end-time purposes? What about the land of Israel? Do you believe that it was promised to Abraham's ancient seed and it's theirs forever? You do believe that, don't you? Karen said, don't get too excited. <laughs> I'm really trying hard, huh? Listen, hear me, hear me here. I would want to say that my emotional sympathies have always been, since I'm that high, I don't know why, but since I was that high, my emotional sympathies have always been with Israel, and I am most certainly not an anti-Semite. For most of my years as a Christian, I would have taken the position that the modern day state of Israel was a miracle of God's end time purposes. I have preached that. I'm not sure that I've preached it here. I have never bought into the dispensational approach and the teaching of what was supposed to happen once the land was reformed. You know, that the temple would be rebuilt and the Levitical sacrifices reinstituted and so on. The book of Hebrews seemed to me to answer that as a possible uh, you know, way forward in God's purposes. Maybe we'll touch on that in a minute. But, but I have always believed that God has miraculously preserved the Jewish people, and I have believed that the physical nation of Israel uh, was their home promised to them, and its reformation in 1948 was a miracle. I have to say I'm sim I am still somewhat disposed to that idea. But I want to play the devil's advocate this morning and throw at you some thoughts that have been rattling around in my heart with increasing strength for about the last five to seven years. And I'll just present it to you. You can do what you like with it, okay? You're the Bereans. You search the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. And I can hear some people say, Don, I hate it when you do this. Just for goodness sake, tell me what the Bible believes and tell me what to believe. Whatever you do, don't leave me having to think <laughs> and grapple with these ideas. You know, there's an old saying that says 5% of the people think, 5% of, uh, of the people think they think, and the rest would rather die than think. <laughs> I really hope that you're in that 5% who, yeah, yeah, give me these ideas, I'll grapple with them, okay? Because it is really time to put your big boy and big girl pants on and do some thinking. Um, N.T. Wright makes the comment, he says, you know, the mark of mature scholarship is the excitement, the willingness and the excitement of being challenged and of being willing to lay down ideas that perhaps you previously had held to very strongly when you see that the evidence for another position is actually stronger than the evidence you hold. Now, I don't mind, honestly, and you've heard me say this before, I don't mind if you sit there and say, you know what, I don't believe any of that. 
And that's fine, so long as you do know why you do believe what you believe. Just simply to believe something that you've always been told and to be threatened because I'm telling you something new is not a good deal. Okay. You know what, as I've looked into the scriptures, I've been increasingly challenged by the thought that there is another way of looking at this. Now, my bottom line belief about the present day nation of Israel is that they have a right to flourish as a nation. That given the nature of anti-Semitism, the Holocaust of the 20th century, I would feel we have a moral and perhaps even a political obligation to stand with them against people that would want them exterminated. However, that is not the same thing as saying that Israel has a biblical covenantal right to that territory. You know, the fascinating thing is I believed that strongly over the years, but as I look into the New Testament, I notice that there is not one definitive statement, either by Jesus or by Paul, about the restoration of Israel to their promised land. And I would want to say, if the promises of God to physical Israel was the restoration to the land and some kind of earthly dominion over the other nations, I would imagine that both Jesus and Paul would have something definitive to say about that, that they would at least reference it in passing. Now, some of you are saying, but Don, it does say when the fig tree blossoms and, and you know the time is near and the fig tree is a sign of Israel. That's, that's, that's an oblique reference. It's parabolic for a start, and one hesitates to develop significant doctrine out of parables. I mean, if you're going to develop that out of the parable of the fig tree, what are you going to develop out of the parable of the prodigal son and, and uh, you know, the good Samaritan and a dozen and one other things? I was always taught, listen, don't develop doctrine out of parables. Take their main theme, their main message. If that's the only reference to the possibility of Israel blossoming in the end of the age, then it's very oblique. Christopher Wright, who I find a brilliantly clear theologian, says this, there is no instance where Jesus expects a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy other than through his own ministry and certainly no suggestion of a future restoration of the Jewish nation independent of himself. He himself is the fulfillment to which the prophecy points, the ultimate horizon of prophetic vision. Which I wonder, isn't that what Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, when he said all the promises of God find their yes in him? Now, it might be that some of you would say to me, Don, you know what? It doesn't need to be in the New Testament, as you have so eloquently said, you know, this is one story. And in the first part of the story, the nation was promised to them forever. And, and you would be right to a point. Because in Genesis chapter 13, verse 14 and 15, it says, The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westwards, for the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. Now, it says exactly the same in Genesis 17.7 and Genesis 48.8. Forever, Don, how, how much plainer would you like it to be said? I will give you this land forever. Problem. 
The Hebrew word translated by the word forever clearly doesn't mean everlastingness, if there's such a word, as we might expect. The Hebrew word olam can be translated translated eternal or forever, but it's also used to describe the the Levitical priesthood. The priesthood shall be theirs by statute forever, the scripture says in Exodus 29. Now, if the book of Hebrews means anything at all, it means that the Levitical priesthood has come to a close, and and it's not forever. It's not valid forever. uh, Hebrews plainly states that. The word olam also describes David's kingly descendants. They'll be forever. Well, they weren't forever. David's line, kingly line at least, finished when the nation was taken off into Babylon. Slaves who were dedicated to their master underwent a ceremony where their ears were pierced. And it says, and that slave shall belong to that master forever. Olam. Well, we clearly know that doesn't mean eternal. It means a long period of time, duration, a long duration. The sacrificial system of the old story and its details are said to last forever. Well, they clearly don't. Hebrews tells us that. Hannah wanted her boy Samuel to dwell in the presence of the Lord forever, olam, in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Clearly, that we're not talking something eternal here. Look, I don't think anyone would be bold enough to argue that the use of olam in those passages means anything like eternal or everlasting. It means, as the word olam can mean, ancient for a long duration, something that's lasting. Again, Christopher Wright. The expression forever needs to be seen not so much in terms of everlastingness in linear terms, but rather as an intense expression within the terms, conditions, and context of the promise concerned. Forever is not in Hebrew as infinite as it sounds in English. So when you say, well, you don't need a promise in the New Testament to indicate that Israel will be reformed in the purposes of God, you've got it in the Old Testament where it says It's given to Abraham and his descendants forever. Mm, Maybe not. By the way, it seems that Abraham himself didn't see the physical land that he'd been promised as the ultimate fulfillment of his inheritance because Hebrews says he clearly looked beyond the physical land and the physical cities and he sought a better country and a more enduring city that was to come. Even he wasn't looking at this saying, this is it. He was looking through it, saying this points to that. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about the land being a place of rest, and the people didn't find rest even though it was promised them. And that rest is pushed forward into the ministry and life of Jesus, and it's there that you will find rest. So again, you are looking through the physical land and looking for something beyond. Some writers have suggested that God has promised the land to Israel unconditionally forever. And that sounds fine, except that covenants always had conditions. there, There aren't any unconditional covenants. They always have conditions. Israel had the land in terms of as long as they were obedient. When they broke the terms of the covenant, ultimately they were sent into Babylonian exile because they broke the conditions of the covenant. 
They failed to fulfill the covenantal obligations. To suggest that the land belongs to Israel in perpetuity, no matter how faithless she is, really is to stretch covenantal conditions to a point of absurdity. Now, when it came to who constitutes the people of God, what we saw is that God universalizes the promises. He redefines the promises. He makes it other than the physical seed of Abraham. And he says, by faith, I will narrate you into that story. So the family of Israel is redefined so that it includes all who share the faith of its father, Abraham. God universalizes the seed of Abraham. Now, when you come to the New Testament, it seems that the writers do exactly the same with the promise of the land. Crucial scripture, Romans chapter 4, verse 13. For the promises to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the, what? Heir of the world. Excuse me? What? No, 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 no. Back here, Abraham has promised a land, 175 miles long, 75 miles wide. It's called Canaan. Get the Canaanites out. That belongs to you forever. When you come into the New Testament, and Paul is talking about this, he says the promise to Abraham was that he and his descendants would possess the world. Suddenly, something's happened to this promise. It has undergone a phenomenal expansion. And you see that through the Old Testament. In, in Psalm 37, the meek shall inherit the land. When you come over to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, and the meek shall inherit the earth. Back here when the, in the Decalogue where the children are being told, you obey your parents, because if you obey your parents, life will go well for you and you'll live long in the land. When Paul is using exactly that same scripture writing to Ephesians chapter 6, he says, you obey your parents because when you obey your parents, life will go well for you in the earth. And suddenly the land has swelled until it has become the earth. Something has enlarged. Something has been universalized. It seems that what happens to the family happens maybe to the land as well. Biblical scholar F.F. Bruce says this, the earthly Canaan and the earthly Jerusalem were temporary and object lessons pointing to the saints' everlasting rest and the well-ordered city of God. The Abrahamic land of promise finds its fulfillment in the new earth and the new creation. I actually find that persuasive. There's much more that could be said but, I, but, but I'm, you know, as I say, you're the Bereans. You do your homework. You can sit wherever you like on this. You're not going to get a fight out of me. But I'm starting to be really stirred about some larger possibilities than I had ever imagined. Let me conclude this portion. How are we going? Let me conclude this portion by quoting John Piper. Now, John Piper and N.T. Wright, for those of you who are interested in theological things, don't generally belong in the same stable. Okay, they, they have some major disagreements about lots of things. But it seems that they do agree about this. And uh, John Piper says this. The promises made to Abraham, including the promise of the land, will be inherited as an everlasting gift only by the true spiritual Israel, not by disobedient, unbelieving Israel. 
In other words, the promises cannot be demanded by anyone just because they are Jewish. The secular state of Israel today may not claim a present divine right to the land, but they and we should seek a peaceful settlement, not based on present divine rights, but on international principles of justice, mercy, and practical feasibility. We should not give blanket approval to Jewish or to Palestinian actions. We should approve or denounce according to biblical standards of justice and mercy among peoples. He goes on to say, it is wrong for Christians to be unquestioningly pro-Israel and anti-Palestinian in the political and geographical situation in the Middle East. It may be right to be pro-Israel or pro-Palestinian on any given issue. But while Israel is breaking covenant with her God by rejecting his Messiah, the criterion for what is right in the Middle East should be equally applied standards of justice and mercy among nations and not divine rights or covenant privileges. Our relation to Jews and Palestinians should be to love them and to treat them with mercy and justice as we do all others. Anti-Semitism is sin. Unquestioning rejection of the possible rights of Palestinians is sin. No apples. Okay, that's good. You say, Don, but what about national Israel and end-time purposes? Doesn't Romans 11 say that in the end, all Israel will be saved? It does use that language, and we simply do not have the time, and I suspect most of you don't have the interest, to pursue this line of questioning. I have material that I could recommend to you if you do want to pursue them. Some scholars are expecting an end-time revival among Jewish people, and they would say that's all Israel being saved. A number of other really good and godly scholars would say, no, that's not what that is saying, and give really good reasons for it. So, well, what do you believe? You know what? I don't know. Let me simply say this. If God does intend doing a work among ethnic Israelites at the end of the age, then it will be in terms of what has already been described in the olive tree passage. They can be grafted back into the family easily, Romans 11 says. But it's through faith in the Messiah. There is no other name, there is no other way that men can be saved. And all that would do was simply make them part of the one family, the elect, Abraham's seed, the true Israel, the 12 tribes, whatever you want to call it, they share in the one destiny of the one people. And, and who wouldn't want that to happen? Let me finish very briefly with the last great pillar of Judaism. So we've considered monotheism. We've just considered election, the one people, the one God, the one people. The last great pillar is eschatology, the one story. Don't get alarmed. I'm not going to spend anything like the time on that that I've spent on the others, okay? Where is the story heading? Where will it end? Well, in the story thus far, the Jewish people clung to a hope. And that hope had specific content and shape. Rooted in the scripture, the hope wasn't just for an individual future hope beyond life. Hope for life after death. It wasn't centered in life after death. They hoped for the restoration and the renewal of their whole nation and perhaps even for the whole of creation. 
And Isaiah talks about that in Isaiah chapter 11, where the wolf will romp with the lamb and so on. I won't read the scripture. And, and in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, pay close attention, Isaiah says, I'm creating, or quoting God, I'm creating a new heaven and a new earth. All the earlier troubles, chaos and pain and things of the past will be forgotten. Sounds like the end of the story when you read Revelation 21 and 22. That was the Jewish hope. Their hope was for a world set right at last, a world free from injustice, a world of shalom. Their hope was not a hope beyond the world, but a hope for the world. As creator of the world, they thought Yahweh had a plan to set right all that had gone wrong. The ancient Jewish hope was that Yahweh would return to Zion and that there would be a new exodus through which his people would be delivered from the oppression of their enemies and set once again in their inheritance. Their heart would be transformed, described by Ezekiel and Jeremiah as heart circumcision, and they would become a people who would keep Torah properly. That was the great Jewish hope. Paul says it was all fulfilled in Jesus. He's Yahweh returning to his people through his life, death, and resurrection. He constitutes and opens up a new exodus. And when you think like that, so many passages just come alive. You know, you look at Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, the heart of Paul's theology. It's a mini Exodus story. In Exodus chapter 6, they go through the waters of baptism, and their old enemy is broken. In chapter 7, the giving of the law. In chapter 8, the Holy Spirit comes down to fill them, to circumcise their hearts, to make them a people who fulfill the law by the Spirit. Paul sees this great Jewish hope in fulfilled in in Jesus. And when he's talking to the Corinthians, he's talking to them as a new Exodus people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, let's not do what the last Exodus people did. They whinged and complained and, 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 and got buried in the desert. We are a new Exodus people. Let us not respond as they did. Now, Paul teaches, and we won't go into this, I've done it before, that what the Jews hoped in terms of resurrection at the end of the age has broken into the middle of the age, that the future has busted into the presence in Jesus' resurrection. And now we are living in this tension of the kingdom has been inaugurated, but it hasn't yet been consummated. We're living in the now but not yet tension of the kingdom of God. It has started. New creation has busted loose. And you are the people marked by new creation and therefore in Abraham's seed. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that we love to quote. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Literally in the Greek, it goes, if any man be in Christ, new creation. It's begun, and it's begun in you, and you. It's started, and ultimately, it will be consummated when Jesus comes again, and the resurrection at the end of the age will take place. This is the Jewish story. This is the one story that started way back here with the creation and God's purposes to have an earth filled with the glory of God and with faithful images that would reflect him and and steward him to creation. 
The fall ruined that. The choosing of Abraham in Acts 3 is the inauguration of a people who will undo the sin of Adam. When Jesus comes, he's the true Israelite that does what God had promised. We are now the one people that are blessed and are to be a blessing to the whole of creation. And ultimately, on that day when we are raised to a new heavens and a new earth, the earth will be filled with the glory of God and it will be filled with faithful images of God who will reflect that glory to the creation. That's the story. You're part of it. Does it matter? Yes, it does. I'm trying. (laughs) We live in the presence in the light of what we believe about the future. You ask any athlete who's training for the Olympics. They live their present in the light of what they anticipate in the future. We all do. So many in our age don't anticipate a future, and that's why they live dissolute in the present. They can't see anything beyond tomorrow, so why not get it all today? We are a different people. We have been narrated into Israel's story, and how we live makes a difference because we're called. Who are you and what are you doing here? You're an image of God and you're here to reflect that image to your part of the world. And we're to be faithful at it in the way that Israel weren't. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can live out the substructural purposes that were in the law. Gratitude, grace, God is the most important. People are more important than things. That was always the law. And Jesus said, I've come to fulfill that. And by the Spirit, we will be a people who live that out, Romans chapter 8 says. That's a phenomenal challenge. You have an incredible responsibility on your shoulders, and you have resources that are sufficient to be the kinds of people that we've been called to be. We have one God. We are one people. And it is one story. Here endeth the lesson. Much better than apples, thank you. (laughs) Would you like to stand with me? Karen, would you? Can I just have those words of knowledge? Thank you. It's um, it's 25 past, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna stop right there. I've probably given you enough to choke on, so. Um, I'm going to pray for you and we're going to pronounce the blessing over you. But before we do, um, just some words of knowledge that the prayer teams have had. Our prayer teams are going to be over here. If any of these resonate with you and you'd like to just be prayed for, please come. They would love to pray for you. Someone having a problem in their right shoulder blade area. Uh, Somebody who has bursitis. Um, If you've never heard of bursitis, and I never had, um, it's a real disease, and if you've got it, you'll know. So um, you can come, okay? Um, Somebody who's just feeling completely at the end of their tether, feel like the rope has run out, and um, I'm not sure why they've got relationships or maybe financial, question mark. But if that rings a bell and you're just feeling, you know what, I just don't know whether I can do another day, why don't you give them a chance to pray for you, okay? Somebody who is uh, battling with a dairy allergy, uh, somebody, I don't know whether you're the same person, but with a persistent skin rash, and um, somebody who's just struggling with an ingrown toenail that just doesn't seem to respond to any kind of treatment. If any of those make any sense to you, or if you've got any other need that you'd really love for the teams to pray for you over, please, would you come? Father, we thank you for the power of your word. Um, Sometimes we feel like little children 
We don't know our left hand from our right, but you said by your Holy Spirit, you would lead and guide us. And that's what we're asking for, Jesus, that you would lead us and guide us into all truth uh, as you promised your disciples. Help us to be a people tender and soft and reflecting you into this world that desperately needs that reflection. We want to be a people, Lord, that rightly represents you in our world and in this world. Help us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Would you lift up your hands? If you're new here, it's not some kind of trick. We just love to pronounce a blessing for you. It's a blessing from our story. And um, I want to pray it over you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. May the love of God our Father, the incredible grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the intimate friendship of the Holy Spirit be yours this morning and always. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.